Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast, where we bring together the best medical minds, thought leaders, scientists, patients, and caregivers to inform and inspire the spondylitis community. I'm your host, Jill Miller, living my best spa life, knowing that how we meet today has the power to change everything going forward. Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast. I'm your host, Jill Miller, and today we have Dr. Melissa Mandala, who is a triple specialist of family medicine, lifestyle medicine, and integrative care psychiatry. She helps people overcome depression, anxiety, ADHD, digestive issues, and hormone imbalances. She is one of the first and youngest nationally recognized lifestyle medicine fellows and is a strong community health advocate. She serves as faculty at Loma Linda University Preventative Lifestyle Medicine Department, which is one of the world's blue zones for longevity. She served as an She served as an American College of Lifestyle Medicine Board of Directors and is a diplomat of lifestyle medicine. She has planted seeds of change in the communities that she does business through lecturing at local medical schools, VegFest, and virtual summits. She has devoted decades of volunteer work in underserved communities in California and internationally. She has been featured in popular media many times, such as Forbes, Well and Good, Women Vegan Summit, local news outlets, and social media, where you can find her at Dr. Melissa's Kitchen. She prioritizes lifestyle modifications to optimize health, and her passion is educating and empowering healthy living and cooking. She also has a unique cooking show that focuses on flavor, culture, and fun, again, at Dr. Melissa's Kitchen on YouTube. She is uniquely engaging, and a motivational speaker that brings evidence-based methods to combat chronic disease and uplift potential barriers through self-empowerment and compassion. Dr. Melissa, I'm very excited to welcome you to talk about lifestyle medicine and optimizing health today. Thanks for joining us. Yes, it's a pleasure. It's nice to be back. I know last time I was cooking uh, a demo um, in the kitchen and sharing a recipe. So it's nice to just have a conversation. Great. Well, thanks for coming. One of the things in your bio as I read it that was so interesting to me that I think most of our listeners may not know a lot about um, when it comes to lifestyle medicine is what are blue zones for longevity? Yeah. No, thank you. What a great question. So, you know, the blue zones are basically throughout the world. Um, one of them um, is not just Loma Linda, um, which is in California. A lot of people know that, but the, that type of group are the Adventist group and it's all the Adventists within California, but there's also um, Sicily and um, Okinawa, Japan and Costa Rica and these ideal places for the originals when it comes to people who live till over 100. So these are centennials, people who live long, um, who thrived with minimal medication. So they had the lowest rates of heart disease, um, diabetes, um, lowest rates of high blood pressure, um, and even to the point where um, they had minimal medications and minimal need for surgeries. So their key lifestyle factors of why they lived long. And if you ask even the current centennials of modern America and even those um, who may pass, their common thing is that they ate more whole foods. Um, so they focused on nutrition um, and they were active uh, daily walking. And they were also in a place where they were socially connected to others, getting a lot of support. Um, you know, in Italy, they did the siestas, but every culture had their way of 
taking a day of rest or a few hours of rest. Um, and then also um, these blue zoners uh, focused on um, sleep as well. And that's part of lifestyle medicine and reducing stress. So they definitely are the um, populations, and I mean thousands and thousands of popula uh, people who live within these communities for decades and centuries, uh, who have shown us how to live long, thrive, and be on minimal medications and less disease. Awesome. That's it. Was it's fascinating to me as I read about these, and it it ties a lot to which we'll get into right a lot of these are in places where people are eating sort of what we know is like the mediterranean diet uh and in terms of lifestyle medicine or what we've learned from the blue zones uh when it comes specifically to people with spondyloarthritis um what are the the characteristics of those blue zones or or lifestyle medicine that could benefit people with spondyloarthritis right so the foundation to overcoming ankylosing spondylitis is literally being on a anti-inflammatory type of um, eating pattern. Um, and that eating pattern is usually going to be high in, in antioxidants, high in omega-3s. So high antioxidants usually comes from fruits, vegetables, um, the main things. Um, some people can tolerate the beans, the nuts, and the seeds, but definitely omega-3s are going to be part of that picture too, or Mediterranean if you get them fish or algae. And those are anti-inflammatory that really seal um, um, just like fiber would, they would help seal the microbiome and help um, increase the anti-inflammatory cascades. So a fiber-rich uh, polyphenol diet is really key. And, you know, and I always like to say it's not one diet's not for everyone. Sometimes we have to pivot. Sometimes there's different seasons in people's life um, based on what they're experiencing. And that's the beauty of nutrition. Um, I don't go in towards a restrictive diet. I just say in a more health promoting diet. Um, and that gives us the almost the freedom and compassion to really have a, a really positive relationship on food. Cause it can be really sometimes scary um, when we don't know if we're gonna get a flare from a certain food or not. Um, so to understand the basics are eliminating processed foods. So sugar, sugary, salty um, packaged foods with 50 ingredients if you read the labels. And that's really the first step in getting towards a more healthy, uh, I would say, uh, anti-inflammatory eating pattern. And would you include in that uh, sort of the processed carbohydrates as opposed to carbohydrates you'd find in a vegetable or a fruit? Yeah, so there's simple and complex carbs. So the simple carbs are usually anything like white bread, white pasta, um, anything I would say extremely processed down to you're going to have you know white sugar and even even the evidence shows that there's low starch diets um, are actually helps ankylosing spondylitis. There's a few subset of people that can benefit from that. So people who have low amounts of potatoes as well. Um, uh, and so that's still something that we can consider um, with someone with ankylosing spondylitis. But overall, you want high amounts of vegetables, fruits, and omega-3s. 
And those are the complex carbohydrates. Yes, and those are the complex carbohydrates. And the reason why they're complex is because they're attached to fiber, phytonutrients, minerals, vitamins, polyphenols. And when they're attached to all of those, they're whole products and the body is able to actually digest each nutrient at a time um, to help either um, seal the microbiome that's probably leaky or even the there's a barrier in our blood brain, brain barrier. Um, so you wanna make sure that that's a healthy layer and you're not pushing inflammation in the brain as well. Um, and the oral microbiome is important too. So there's so many microbiomes um, as we know in medicine, the oral microbiome, the gut microbiome, and the skin microbiome. And you wanna be able to feed it fiber rich foods with full of antioxidants. And, and literally what's so fascinating about nutrition is when you're able to eat anti-inflammatory foods, you're not only able to help treat one chronic condition such as ankylosing spondylitis, you can help a whole myriad of other conditions. Uh, and that's the beauty of it. So as someone who is a patient uh, with spondyloarthritis decides that they're gonna make a shift toward a different diet, how do they make informed choices? I know it can be, I've been through it. I'm sure a lot of listeners have been through it. You go, I'm going to eat low carb. And then you think you're eating low carb and you start reading labels or you start looking things up. And is there any good rule of thumb on how to get started to be informed about those choices? Yeah, no, great question. It's always so important to know where you're at physically um, and emotionally and uh, your environment because not everyone can do um, a, a diet plan right away. You, there's a lot of prep there. Um, so first of all, being well-informed through your labs and with your doctor, just making sure that you're in a safe place to do uh, a type of transition towards a certain nutritionary dietary plan. Um, and number two, you wanna make sure that you are um, prepared because there is a lot of misinformation out there, right? There's, there's, there's a lot of different types of diets and not some people have gluten sensitivity, some people have soy sensitivity, sometimes um, people may flare off certain seeds or nightshades. Not It's not necessarily for everyone and sometimes our microbiome evolves too. So I don't say, you know, maybe one food may not work last year, but that food can maybe something that you can retrain your gut and your immune system to retry again later. Um, and so I would say you definitely want to do it with guidance um, so that you can get the appropriate labs and testing and get the history in terms of it's always best to document and have your, your own journal. Yourself. Yeah, I think that's important. I know for me personally, from the time I was probably not even a teenager, I spent decades not being able to eat bananas, avocados, uh, anything as I look back had that had a lot of potassium in it. And as I started down the path of trying to retrain my body and all of it, right, my, we're a system. Uh, mm -hmm. Now I eat those things in volume. <laughs> yeah, isn't it amazing? You would never think I, before I could never tolerate watermelon, instant itchiness, instant um, yeah. irritation. And um, decades later, as my microbiome has healed, I can eat as much as I want. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and I saw it, and I don't know if you would agree with this, but I, I used to see a practitioner that would always say, if it's something that doesn't 
work for you and you can safely try small amounts, just start. And I remember we tried with fish oil because I was, uh, I could never eat fish oil. And I said it was, I had a, not a reaction, but it was a discomfort. And she said, well, just try a two milliliter dropper every day and see how that goes. And I think sometimes we're, we want to like, we, we almost, do you find that people sometimes shock their system, which has negative effects when changing? Exactly. So people can um, go jump into something. Um, it's not necessarily the safest because our immune system is going to um, have a flood of um, antigens or new new things or things that they're potentially allergic to or sensitive to. So yeah, I totally agree with the, the small amount teaspoons at a time, like an eighth of a teaspoon at a time and, and gradually go week by week or um, figure out what you can have in other food species that are maybe different and similar. Um, and then you can expand through that. And in some of those foods, and we're going to shift off food because we have so much to cover here, but in some of those foods, could it be shifting from a raw carrot to a blanched carrot or a raw type of food to a, a somewhat cooked type of food that makes the difference? Yeah, so definitely I would say cooked foods are a bit more tolerable for most people um, and because at least you can... Um, lessen the active in enzymes because when you ever you heat something up it almost kind of kills it even though it's lovely nutrients but at least you can lessen the potential side effect from the type of food so um, cooked or peeled or mashed or um, different um, textures or combinations because um, foods work synergistically to each other so you'll you'll get surprise how um, good you'll feel when you just try different methods of cooking your foods um, and different ways of even spicing them because people don't realize well maybe it was my oil or maybe it was um, that I would say you know sometimes it's the okay rarely it's organic versus inorganic but sometimes it's the um, restaurant food because <laughs> you don't know sure. the contaminants um, that right. you're going to be getting. That's a really good point. Uh, okay. So let's, uh, let's shift off food just a bit because you're more of a systemic person. Uh, physical activity and, or, and I guess we could include sleep in this. Are there certain activities that might be beneficial for our listeners or things they should consider again, when they begin down the road of maybe establishing a, an exercise routine or stretching routine? Absolutely. So for those with ankylosing spondylitis, I know there's two forms. My own husband has it. So there's the one that starts in the low back. Um, and then, then there's the peripheral version where there's just um, joint pain throughout the whole body. Um, I would say uh, stretching definitely um, low impact um, exercises um, are great but my favorites are still going to be yoga um, tai chi and even qigong which is um, even more meditative and um, helps with stress reduction as well and activating the vagus nerve to help relax us because sometimes when we're in pain we're in a fight or flight cycle and we just need something um, that can just allow us to move and literally moving can just be walking um, that's the beauty of exercise is it doesn't have to be rigorous. It can be literally therapeutic to just walk 
10 minutes a day first um, and then move up to 15 to 30 minutes a day uh, and as you're being able to um, increase your mobility decrease your stiffness in the morning um, there's so much research that says exercise is anti-inflammatory so we really need to make exercise part of our daily dose and make it something that we can do as often as possible. I say first thing in the morning or after meals, especially if people have insulin sensitivity or um, if they're people who are in a place where, because if you have insulin sensitivity uh, or resistance, either meaning your glucose is really high. If your glucose is really high, that means your inflammation is really high. So you just want to keep the insulin down. So you also keep the inflammation down and the pain down. So the once again, the best time to exercise is first thing in the morning and after meals. First thing in the morning after. Okay. That's after meals. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Uh, and along that, okay, you mentioned one, uh, one thing that is really, I think most, many of us don't know about or know too much about, which is the vagus nerve. Like, how does that play in from a holistic perspective? What is it? Where is it? because I think it's really important and we're getting to learn a lot more about it. Yeah, definitely. So the autonomic nervous system basically has a cord that connects from the brain all the way to our gut, to our immune system throughout our whole body. And it, it stops by the heart and lungs. It's basically, it's our unconsciousness. Um, of what is happening in at a, in our mind, in our physiological uh, being. So sometimes people don't even realize that they're overwhelmed and stressed, but they they feel butterflies in their stomach, or they feel um, they are feeling even more pain, even though they may not know exactly what their triggers are. But it's usually because of stress and the the hyper vigilance, hypersensitivity that the whole nervous system has um, become because of um, poor stress cope, stress um, management or poor coping skills. So just find my key is finding ways to activate the vagus nerve, which is breathing deeply, having deep breath exercises or humming or going in the shower um, and gargling. Um, so there are definitely certain methods to activate the vagus nerve so that it can offset the stress, fight or flight, um, I would say pro-inflammatory pathways. So go from survive to thrive. Exactly. To keep it simple. <laughs> yeah, but it's fascinating. Uh, rest digest rather than fight or flight. <laughs> let's say that again. To rest and digest. Oh, I like that one too. Uh, so stress, we just talked a little bit about it uh, in terms of people with uh, spondyloarthritis, is there anything else you'd recommend on stress management and why is that so important for people with inflammation? Yeah, so when it comes to stress, it's not only one of the top killers, um, not just that leads to heart disease, but also it can increase our flares. When we're stressed, we're often not eating the best, we're sleep deprived, we are um, emotionally uh, more sensitive. And for women, we all been there, sometimes our hormones are fluctuating. Um, and when we uh, are not necessarily leaning into that, it can be overwhelming. And so I always like to focus on knowing that we can meditate uh, on a day-to-day -day and 
sometimes it can just be five minutes. Um, there are times where I was able to do 30 minutes, but that wherever you are in your life where you can find a place to either listen to nature sounds or play your favorite music or instrumental music where you're literally um, clearing your head because a lot of worrying, uh, anxiety, depression can be very toxic and it causes neural inflammation. And I've done a whole lecture on this and how um, there's a release of um, neurotransmitters and chemical imbalances where our brain often feels suppressed um, in our mood. Um, and we are in a place of a cycle of stress that's hard to break out of. So I definitely recommend finding ways to de-stress even through uh, yoga or um, even laughing, right? Laughing is therapy. Um, right. And being able to walk in nature and um, finding um, the pure joys that make you smile again. The joy and wonder in the mundane. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I think if I can get there, I've reached nirvana uh, in, my, in the back of my head. Uh, so tell me a story of patients who walk in with spondyloarthritis or an inflammatory disease. Uh, they move through some modifications in terms of diet and stress management and exercise and maybe uh, managing depression or um, another, uh, another condition like ADHD. Three or six or nine months down the road, what are the stories people come back and tell you about how things have changed for them? Yeah, no, thank you for that. And you know, Dr. You and I, we share a lot of patients. Some patients have lupus, ankylosing spondylitis, psoriatic arthritis, and literally um, even, you know, eczema, depression, anxiety. And they they come together, all, all these conditions, because um, we are all connected. And the beautiful thing is when we're able to really get down to the root cause and address food for the very first time because their doctor didn't talk about it uh, or getting into their their mindfulness and being able to have this intuitive sense to know their body and what kind of foods that they can tolerate and what kind of foods that um, are healthy, uh, it allows them to feel more empowered. Um, and so we have a lot of thank yous um, saying, wow, thank you for not only spending the time listening to me, but also finding out solutions that that work where we can reduce the medications or completely get them off the medications, minimize the flares. So it's great to see our patients at least 70 to 90% better, sometimes 100% better. Um, because we are walking with them. And it, you know, it sometimes just takes a month. Like we've seen it that quickly. Um, when I was in intensive lifestyle change programs where they, people who are really serious and dedicated, um, it sometimes takes two weeks. You know, those are the really like wonderful, miraculous stories. But sometimes it does take at least three, six months, one year. Um, those who need greater than one year, usually it's other complex things. Um, so in our clinic, we treat even cases of previous chronic infections or mold or um, literally depression, depression, anxiety is the the barrier um, for them to actually engage into a healthier lifestyle. Um, so once we treat that, um, people are able to uh, be able to have the motivation to take care of themselves or get support that they need. Excellent. I love hearing uh 
success stories. They get their life back. They're able to go back to work, go back to school. They're uh, even advocates for the community where they bring all their friends um, or family members who have similar diseases uh, and we take care of them. And they also are able to take care of their surrounding social circles. Yeah, well. for sure. And I, you touch a nerve because that's where I came from. So I, and I, in my own journey was pretty bad shape. And thanks to a lot of the community who supports spondylitis, uh, now I get to give back. So it's, it's really amazing. And uh, it does give you your life back. There's no doubt about that. And it's, I know for a lot of people, it can be really scary going down a path where you just don't feel good. You have responsibilities and children to take care of. And, and in many cases, I know a lot of your work is around uh, community settings where there are so many of these pressures there and it's one small step, right? The only thing you have to worry about is the next step in front of you. And sometimes it's those choices that can give you your life back, those really small shifts. Uh, so thanks for sharing that. Uh, one question I, I do think about is in, uh, as people are modifying uh, lifestyle, um, whether it's sleep or food or exercise, um, most of this is happening in conjunction with uh, traditional medical treatments uh, or biologics or medications. And are there any uh, interactions people need to be aware of if they start something that's a natural approach as opposed to the traditional uh, medicine approach? Yeah, no, great question. And just to piggyback what you just said about, you know, we, for everyone, we have to just keep it really realistic for either moms or, or young people who may not have access to um, healthy uh, foods or who are struggling to afford the gym. Um, so I, I really feel as if the more we know, the more knowledge we have, um, it is powerful. It is uh, a stepping stone because when the time is right, then we'll apply those little baby steps that really make us into a new person. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the beauty mm -hmm. of it. And when to answer your question about the what to watch out for when you are either going on a lifestyle change through nutrition or trying certain supplements or herbs, I would say you you just need to make sure you discuss it with your doctor once again because when you're treating um, an autoimmune disease through nutrition, sometimes all your other numbers improve, like your blood pressure improves, your your sugars improve, your cholesterol improves, and and you might not need all those medications. Um, and so you, especially if you're on insulin, you want to make sure that they're in the know because you might need to taper them down, especially if you're doing intermittent fasting or any type of fasting, you want to just be mindful because you can easily... Um, be in a place where you're kind of worried why am I losing all this weight <laughs> um, right and maybe yeah. that's not necessarily your your goal um, and or maybe you want to maintain your weight not necessarily lose weight um, so there's a lot of things to um, keep in mind and of course there's certain cross um, I would say um, cross reactions between medications and supplements um, and herbs and um, so you just want to make sure that you um, inform your healthcare team. So I'm going to take a quick pivot 
one of the things that keeps coming back to me is right as a lifestyle medicine or looking at things from a holistic perspective on your journey because you're sort of right you're like a three-legged stool in terms of <laughs> um what you do so where did you begin did you begin in psychiatry and move to family medicine and then into what was your journey that got you to lifestyle medicine yeah no thanks for asking so in my undergrad years undergraduate years i was a psychology major i loved human behavior i loved studying the doctor-patient relationship that's where i did my research in the humor and doctor-patient relationship and how to to develop that um, to relationship because there's often gaps in that um, mistrust in that relationship. So I was able to study it in a way where it related to health as well. Um, so I knew I wanted to do medicine and study it and become a doctor, but I couldn't, I couldn't forget how important human behavior is because that really dictates um, our health, how often we take our medications if we, if we even show up to the doctor's appointment, <laughs> um, if we are even in a place where we're motivated or are we completely just fearful um, and, and in a place where we're not sure that we have the full awareness of what our health is uh, and how important that is to us. So I was always curious about psychology and then I went into family medicine first uh, for my um, undergraduate at Loma Linda for um, my residency and then I went into lifestyle medicine for one year and the reason why I went into lifestyle medicine is because I was looking for nutrition in all of medicine and it's literally you spend an hour or less of talking about nutrition very basic just protein fat and carbs and it didn't really give me the understanding how to use nutrition to heal the body and to use it as therapy and as medicine so not until I studied lifestyle medicine and looked at all the studies and the research where I found the evidence to show that food is medicine. If you dose it right, if you create healthy meals. In my family medicine training, I noticed that food is medicine was something that was taught at Loma Linda, but I knew that I wanted more training. So I did another year of lifestyle medicine. And that allowed me to look at all the evidence and the science and practically use it at a patient level, um, because a lot of us may know that nutrition is important, but how do you implement it along with medications? How do you also um, use it as first line treatment? Um, and that's what I love doing is using nutrition, exercise, sleep and educating and counseling them in a way where can reduce stress and then I did another specialty in primary care psychiatry and then integrative psychiatry and another two-year fellowship in integrative medicine so um, that's in the works as now as I'm talking right now so it's just there's so much knowledge that we yet need to discover in the ways of healing um, yeah. and I think when we come at it as a humble, in a humble approach, it allows us to see that there are other alternative ways. There's acupuncture and Ayurveda, and there's also trauma-informed counseling because a lot of people go under, undergo adverse child events where people had to abruptly move or maybe they were bullied or there was a very stressful event that led to a, an autoimmune disease that they may not even know because they suppressed it. 
Right. And so it's so important to see all those elements because there are reasons why we get autoimmune disease. Um, it is a portion genetic, environmental, and lifestyle, but there's that mental health piece that is so key um, because that is really the the gateway of um, understanding who we are and why we are. <laughs> um, yeah. And then once we know that, we can really step into a way of healing and, and trust the process because it can be very challenging at times. I think you're right. And I, I would love to touch for a few minutes on the work you do in underrepresented communities because I think there is a lot of, right, I, I come at this from a massive place of privilege where I have access to the medical care I need. And uh, I know that not everybody is in that same position. Uh, what is some of the, what are some of the results, positive results you've seen in some of the underrepresented communities you've worked with by being able to either educate? I know one of the biggest issues, right, is access to appropriate medical care. But beyond that, there's all these ideas when you talk about trauma-informed of people who've been through a lot of things that most of us can't even understand. Uh, and then generationally it goes into time poverty and time starvation it's like digging out of a the grand canyon for some families so i would love to hear your experience there because i think there's a lot to share uh that most of us can't imagine ourselves into when we're seeking medical care yeah no thank you so much because that is something that i ask of every patient and when I learned this early on when I worked in um, what we call FQHD so San Bernardino the biggest county but most of them lived under their poverty line um, mm -hmm. and where they were not only living on food stamps but they haven't even seen a um, they haven't even seen a blueberry they didn't know that blueberry was something that is a fruit or they didn't right. know a salad was a vegetable um, and that's how um, in terms of how much uh, education they may need, but more so is they came from generations of either um, discrimination, social discrimination, um, lack of resources. Um, they came in a place where there's language barriers. I worked with a lot of Spanish speaking patients um, and they may know that they, you know, they lived off the farm and it was beautiful, it was delicious, but sometimes they didn't know it was for health. Um, sometimes they would just they would throw out their food because um, they didn't know that it was beneficial for them. Um, and so meeting them halfway and being able to hear their stories of struggle through the all the generational, um, I would say, trauma and anger and grief and sadness and even loneliness because they were immigrants. Um, allows me to really connect with them because sometimes they tell me things they wouldn't they've never told anyone in their life. Yeah. Um, they, they are able to just open up and grieve and cry it out. And literally that allowed them to open up the pathways of healing um, because they were able to discover that, wow, that's why I'm in pain or that's why I am in this negative rut um, that I can't find the the motivation to seek help, or um, maybe that's why I am fearful or distrusting. Distrusting. So I think the generational, cultural 
um, even in people of color, um, Asian population, I've seen that personally too um, in different groups where people are just assume, assuming that, um, you know, health is only, you know, you take care of health when it's only when you need to go to the ER. Like that's the only right. time you need help. <laughs> yeah. And, and I want to, I want to touch on something you said that, so you're in San Bernardino. Um, yeah, that's where I worked right. and I, I trained. Now I'm in more of Orange County, but I, I, you know, that's where I, my faculty at and I do other work. Yeah. And the interesting part there for me, like just to illustrate access or, uh, understanding right for and for people who are listening that aren't familiar san bernardino is just south of the central valley in california where during the season there one quarter of the annual food produced in the u.s comes out of that valley and a lot of it is the fruits and the nuts and the berries um although berries are a little further north <laughs> But one quarter of our food comes from there. And to imagine that there are people living just south of there that don't know what a blueberry is. Uh, when you think about what we have access to versus some people in this country is, okay, I'm gonna get uh, sidetracked here, but I think those are the things that we forget uh, as we look at access to healthcare. So uh, thank you for, yeah, sharing some of that. Uh, in your, uh, I'm gonna, we'll wrap this up because I know we've gone way over, but uh, this is so fascinating. Uh, as you have been in this field and been part of Loma Linda, uh, are there misconceptions that people have when it comes to lifestyle medicine uh, about, you know, that that's not the right route versus medication or uh, that it's not going to make a difference? What do you see out there that people uh, sort of push back on? Yeah, no, great question. I think a lot of people just don't know that they have options um, from from day one. Um, when you go into the medical office, you get your labs, your diagnosis, and here's the medication. Um, there isn't necessarily a com a, com a conversation about movement and sleeping and, and nutrition. So uh, I think this common, common, I would say, people who struggle the most are people who aren't necessarily knowing that there's options or people stick to their doctor and they don't know that they can have second and third opinions. Um, and that's important too, because then you can have a variety of um, avenues and decide personally what's best for you. Um, and also number three is with lifestyle medicine. Um, some people think that you you don't need it um, or that you your medication is enough and literally medications work better when you have lifestyle medicine attached to it so there's studies and research when you when you're already eating healthy sleeping well managing your stress you're able to lower your risk for flares so when you combine them that's a win already um, so I would say don't give up um, even though you may feel that you're going to have some bad days just keep going the path and and you'll get better than you are tomorrow yesterday each day is a new day so i think that's right. it. someone once explained this to me as a uh the path to better in these situations it's a little bit like a toilet paper roll 
the problem gets smaller as time goes on. Like <laughs> Just that. one sheet at a time. I really like that one. Uh, so in terms of resources available to listeners, what would you recommend uh, or where would you recommend people look besides at Dr. Melissa's Kitchen on YouTube? Uh, yeah, for lifestyle medicine. Specifically. Yeah. Yeah, you know, there's a abundance of resources out there you know sometimes just watching simple documentaries because that allows us to captivate um what the stories are of the blue zone so there's forks over knives there's um what the health there's also game changers for those who are who are more active and then there's books as how not to die how not to diet by dr michael gregor um and then for those with um autoimmune disease there's a called blue um code blue um but by dr sarai stanzik she had multiple um sclerosis and so looking at these stories of hope um really is encouraging Do both dr you and i were featured in a in a book in a documentary called disease reversal um stories of hope uh and so you those are great because you can hear other people with autoimmune diseases and their story too um, so that's a great resource. And Forks Over Knives, if you need some great healthy recipes as well, um, definitely our website, we have a bunch of, that you can see. My Autoimmune is my husband, Dr. Micah Yu. And, and the list goes on and on. <laughs> I can I have books. I'm re revamping my website, so it will be drmelissamandalamd.com, and it will have a whole page of resources. Oh, that would be fantastic. So it's drmelissamandala.com. Mm-hmm. There are, I have a thousand more questions for you, so I hope someday we get to cross yeah, paths with you again. Uh, this has been absolutely fascinating. And anything else that you would add to the community who's maybe looking to make some changes or where the hope is? Yeah, exactly. And I, thank you. I would say main thing our our hope is within us. It's at our fingertips and when we're able to manifest it and believe it for ourselves, it really is something um, powerful. Sometimes it's a matter of a switch. Sometimes it's a matter of a conversation, um, but you will get there. So um, persistence, patience, and being in a place of empowerment can really help you overcome. And when you are learning new ways of healthy lifestyle and implementing it, do it as a family, do it together, get support, um, enjoy what you're doing. It doesn't have to be boring. Get tasty, delicious food that you are used to and just um, incorporate more plants in there. Um, it, it will be so much easier. So do it one step at a time. Make it something that can last because most diets don't last. There's a thousand diets out there and it's a billion dollar industry. So it, uh, the, the fix to things are not in just one pill. There's no magic in one thing. It's usually a combination of different things. Um, so uh, I would say do your best and don't give up one day at a time, one pillar of lifestyle medicine at a time and you'll get through it. Awesome. Thank you so very much. We so appreciate you and your commitment to this community and uh, look forward to having another one of these soon. Yeah, anytime you know where to find me. All right, excellent. SpondyCast was made possible by donations from the Spondylitis Association of America's individual members and our show's corporate sponsor, AbbVie. Since our founding in 1983, the Spondylitis Association of America has been the face, voice, and leading nationwide nonprofit, educating, empowering, 
and advocating for people living with spondyloarthritis. Through our extensive work with patients, the medical community, and partners, we provide information and resources to help people impacted by the disease live better lives and champion research to find a cure.